Well, turn with me now to the back of the hymnal, to pages 872 and 873, where you will find Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Although I have a hunch that maybe these words will be familiar, you may even be able to recite them from memory. And uh, I demand it from the kids. So kids, whether you can read or not, you know this. You probably know it better than the adults do. We learned it together in Youth Catechism. Many moons ago, this is Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And again, it begins on page 872. And this will take us over to page 873. Beginning with question three. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Amen. That is God's word and his law summarized for us. Let's go to the Holy Spirit now and ask for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son whom you have appointed our mediator and savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. I mentioned last week that question two of the Catechism is like the table of contents for everything that follows through the rest of the Catechism. That question asks, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer that it gives is three things you must know, and here's the first. You must know the greatness of your sins and misery. How great my sins and misery are is the first answer. In the Catechism, sin refers basically to breaking God's commandments. To sin is to transgress. There's a boundary line and you walk past it. Paul says sin is lawlessness. God has a law, you break it. That is what sin is. And in the catechism, misery refers basically to the consequences of our sins. In other words, sin basically leads to misery. It brings a state of misery upon the world and upon those Who are in sin. It is the misery of guilt. The misery of a sense of God's anger. We saw several weeks ago when we were going through the Psalms in the morning service. From Psalm 90. 
that God's wrath hangs over us. We saw in Psalm 32 that the anger of God was causing David's bones to waste away. That's misery. It's a consequence for sin. There's the misery of fearing death. Because we know intuitively that the wages of sin is death. And so death hangs upon, over us and it hangs out in front of us as this, this uh, immovable thing. You can't escape it. And the sinner knows instinctively that that is the wages for sin. And so we fear it. And that is a miserable thing. So we have sin and we have misery. And tonight we open up the topic of God's law as it relates to our sin and our misery. What it is, what it does, and how it relates to sin. And although we'll gain insights from a few different passages, for most of this message we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, which we read earlier. First then, what is the law? And the answer is that the law is God's moral will. The law is God's moral will. It's really important for us as Bible readers to recognize that that phrase, the law, is used in a large variety of ways in the Bible. So we have to be very careful when we are reading the Bible and you come across the phrase, the law. It's usually modified by something, the law of Moses. The law of God, the law of Christ, the ceremonies of the law, the works of the law, all these different ways of that phrase being used. And what we have to be specific about tonight is that we're speaking about the law as God's moral will. In other words, it refers to what God desires and decides. What God desires and decides. Now, that's a little bit abstract. We can do our best. We can give alliteration to it, you know, desires and decides. But even still, hard to picture what we're talking about when we talk about the moral will of God. And that's because we can't actually comprehend the moral will of God. It's like the knowledge of God that that David spoke about in Psalm 132. And he says... It is uh, Psalm 139, that is. It's too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain it. You can't ascend to this comprehensive knowledge of the moral will of God. It's part of who he is. But God points to this moral law by giving us his commandments. So it is something like this. It's something like the difference between being at the Grand Canyon and standing there in all its greatness, as opposed to seeing pictures and charts and statistics about the Grand Canyon, in that one experience is overwhelming and the other one is more accommodating to you. The pictures and the stats tell you the truth about the Grand Canyon, but they don't tell you everything about the Grand Canyon. And importantly, they don't overwhelm you in the same way that the Grand Canyon would overwhelm you. Well, it's something like that when it comes to God's law. He gives us commandments, and those commandments tell us the truth about his moral will. 
without overwhelming us with the fullness of that moral will, which we could never get our minds around in the first place. And so God speaks directly to us in a way that we can understand by giving us commandments. God accommodates himself to us and he he fits his incomprehensible moral will into a form that we can understand. He gives us commandments and warnings. He says things, for instance, like you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Now that we can begin to picture that we can begin to understand what does that look like fleshed out in our lives. And these two of the greatest commandments summarize this law of God for us. They bear witness to that moral law of God. They show us that there is a God and that he does have a moral order. And that moral will of God expressed in commandments, that's what we're talking about in this part of the catechism. The moral will of God, which comes to us in the form of specific commandments and warnings and things of that nature. So the law is the moral will of God. That's what it is. Secondly, what does the law do? It does a lot of things. We saw some of what it does at the end of the catechism last year. It guides us in our obedience. It is a sweet guide showing us how to please God. And that is the way the psalmists talk about it when they say that it is like honey from the comb. But the law has other functions. It has other uses. It does other things as well. And we're focusing on one particular thing that the law does. It alerts us. That's our second point tonight. The law alerts us. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is talking about the righteousness of God. And Paul is making the argument that no one lives up to that righteousness. Everyone from every background is a sinner, he says. He says, we've already made the point that for both Jews and Greeks, he means non-Jews, so Jews and Gentiles, everyone is under sin. Everyone is. And then in verses 9 through 20, he quotes at least eight Old Testament passages, one quote stacked on top of another from Psalms, from Proverbs, from the prophets, to prove to us That there's never been a righteous person. Verse 12, quoting Psalm 14, he says, No one does good, not even one. No one understands God. No one seeks after him. We may appear to be seeking after him in our own strength, and our own power. We may be the spiritually curious But in the end, it is not a sincere seeking after God. We may appear to be doing some kind of good according to the law of God, but in the end, it is actually turned inward on ourselves. It is self-serving, self-aggrandizing. And so Paul can say this blanket statement is the case. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. Now, the problem is that all people are either unaware of this, or misunderstand the extent of the issue. We are either unaware or we misunderstand the extent of it. Every person knows instinctively that there are moral standards. Paul will go on to say that in Romans chapter 5. 
the law of God is written on everyone's conscience. So even a hardened unbeliever knows, or at one point knew instinctively, that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that these things are wrong. But the problem is that we either downplay how bad those things are, and so we do it anyway, and we find a way to excuse ourselves, or we dismiss the God who gave the commands in the first place. That same psalm that Paul just quoted, Psalm 14, says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I can do what I want. The conscience is, the conscience is saying, don't commit these heinous acts. And yet, the fool says, I'm going to suppress that truth, and I'm going to instead act as if there is no God. So the problem then is not just that there's no one who does good, not even one, but that we are unaware of it. Or we dismiss the problem and downplay the extent of it. But Paul says that God's law now comes and it alerts us to the actual problem. The problem is that God is infinitely good, infinitely just, infinitely holy, and humankind has acted as if he doesn't exist. Or that if he does exist, he will turn a blind eye or he will relax the standards of his law. But the problem, brothers and sisters, is that that law, this moral will of God, is tied to God himself. And God will not and cannot relax his righteousness and his justice. So God has done something for us through his word. He has alerted us to the problem through his law. He has raised up a signal and said, there's a terrible problem going on here. And you have been up to this point unaware of it or downplaying it. But no one is righteous, not even one. And that includes you. Verses 19 through 20 says that the purpose of this is so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's one of the uses of the law of God. It makes you know that you're a sinner. Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 7, I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the commandment hadn't said, you shall not covet. You hear the command and suddenly you are morally aware and you become morally responsible to a degree that you weren't prior to the command. The law of God comes and through this law proclaimed, you become aware and alerted to the fact that you have sin. We tend to think that by obeying some commandments here and there as best we can, we kind of uh, earn for ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. Paul says that's not how the law works. You're trying to put a, 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 an ancient, archaic key into a door that has got a key fob on it. You can't do it. It's the wrong function. The law is not meant for that. The law does not get you out of jail. It doesn't get you out of hell. It doesn't get you out of punishment. It can't do that. It's not what it's for. The law does something different. It tells you the truth that you are a sinner. It gives you the knowledge of sin. It alerts you 
to the problem. It's not the only thing that it does, but it is one of the most important things that it does. All right, we've seen what the law is. We've seen now what it does. Here now is a further thing that it does. The law leads sinners to despair. The law leads sinners to despair. Notice again that Paul says that the whole purpose of this function of the law is so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, that we would stop jabbering on with excuses before God. Why is it that we go back to the commandments week after week? We do it in every Lord's Day service. Why do we bring the commandments? It's a little unpleasant. Let's be honest about it. To have the commandments read once again, we hear them spoken, and then we tell ourselves that we actually have to hold ourselves to what is spoken in those laws. And that question, I think it's a fair one, is why do we just keep saying them every week? Isn't that vain repetition? And Jesus forbids vain repetition. Well, sure it is if you're not paying attention. (laughs) Anything can become vain repetition. But the point is that we are responsible to put God's law back in front of us so that we would stop with our excuses. The role of the law is that every mouth may be stopped. And we are backed into a corner with this severe mercy from God that we would stop trying to get ourselves out of it. The way that we see with children, you know, we see it clearest in children, but we do it ourselves. We try to get out of it. But the law has come to confront and to back us up into a corner so that we will despair. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this, that God's law comes to make you despair of yourself and to convince you day after day that you are not your own savior. That kind of despair is godly. To flee from yourself and to get outside of yourself in order that you may flee to Christ is godliness. And the law comes to press you into that corner so that you have no escape and so that your mouth may be stopped. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, may be held accountable to God. Since no one seeks after God in themselves, we are all accountable. And when the law alerts us to this problem, it presses further until we despair. Despair of ourselves. And in despairing of yourself and of your own goodness, your own righteousness, as though that can stand the day of the Lord, you are left with the only thing that matters, which is Christ offered in the gospel. The free grace of forgiveness. Prideful human beings will not be convinced that grace is free until we know first the greatness of our sin and misery. We have to recognize the immense chasm that is between us and God. The debt that has been stacked so high, we cannot see the top of it. And we must be backed into that corner to totally despair of ourselves in order to see that Christ is a perfect Savior. 
And that forgiveness is actually free. Not mostly free, and then the rest of it is you. You got it somehow. But totally free. That is the scandal of the gospel. And that's not a metaphor. That is how Paul speaks of the gospel. It comes from a Greek word. It is a scandal. It scandalizes the human conscience. And the law comes to press you into that corner so that you would better understand and embrace that scandalizing. Brothers and sisters, we end tonight remembering this encounter between King David and the prophet Nathan. And again, David had stolen a man's wife and arranged for that man to be put to death. And then David went on with life trying to cover it up and ignore it. And he is indeed awfully sure-footed about the whole thing when Nathan comes to him. Nathan comes with this parable of a rich man who has more than enough lambs to take from his own flock, but when the time comes to provide a lamb for a guest, he takes a beloved lamb from a poor man. And David is enraged by this. His response is very painful because we know what has already taken place, and we know that David ought to know better. He's not just a believer, but he is the king of Israel. He's enraged at the injustice that this rich man has committed. And at that very moment, Nathan says, you are that man. That is how the law works, brothers and sisters. It has come from the mouth of God to convince you, not that there just is sin, but that you're the sinner. And that you need the Savior. Not only to others is He a Savior, but to me also the Catechism teaches us to say. And we cannot claim the comfort of that promise until we also recognize the personal effect of sin. I am the man. I am the woman. I am the little one who has committed this sin against Almighty God. It is only through this confrontation from the moral will of God that David finally woke up And despaired of himself and confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. He fell off the hook. He was acting like the fool of Psalm 14. There is no God. Functionally speaking, that's how he was acting. God doesn't see what's going on here. I've covered it up sufficiently. And Nathan says, no, indeed, God sees. And you are this man of the parable. And what you have said about that man deserving death is true of you. You deserve death. And so you must despair of yourself. That razor-sharp confrontation of the law is how the law comes to each of us, brothers and sisters, in order that we might learn to say with David, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. Loved ones in Christ, let the good commandments of God do their work. We resist the commandments. This is part of the risk of meditating on the law of God both day and night. Is that the commandments of God come to us and convict us once again. Let them come and do their work. Let them tell you, you are the one who has broken the the good commandments of God. You are the one who has transgressed the boundary lines of an all holy God. Come to know the greatness of your sin and misery, not so that you might despair and die, but that you might despair of yourself and die to sin and flee to Christ 
that you might come to know that he is a savior for those who are looking truly to him and no longer looking to themselves for salvation. When we do that, we are ready then, fully ready to receive that comforting word. The Lord has put away your sin. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we ask you to continue to establish us, your saints, in the faith that you have handed down to us. Make it firm throughout our lives and give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us in your holy word. We ask all this in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.